listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston, and I am thrilled to have you along. I'm a brand and marketing strategist, and I talk to some of the country's smartest people on marketing, branding, and even some brands themselves. So I'm glad you've joined me today. I have a guest who is the OG of direct marketing, the original gangster. I'm going to read a little uh, a little intro. I've, I've made him chuckle already, and we've hardly got started. His name is Ron Jacobs, and uh, he's the CEO of Jacobs Clevenger. They're an agency out in the Chicago area. They're a performance marketing agency that help clients transform their marketing and enable them to connect with users across customer segments, devices, markets, and geographies throughout the buyer journey. JNC develops programs and creative for millions of pieces of personalized direct mail annually. In addition, they create data-driven initiatives for email, web, content marketing, landing pages, search mobile. And that's not all. I want to tell you a little bit about Ron. He's a marketing communication thought leader, author, practitioner, teacher, and frequent keynote speaker at conferences worldwide. He consults with clients, agencies, and global post offices like Japan Post, China Post, India Post. He's the co-author of Successful Direct Marketing Methods. It's in its eighth edition. This book is the Bible on direct marketing, and uh, it's a best-selling book on the tools and techniques of direct marketing and digital database marketing. In fact, the Japanese version was released in 2015, and they renamed it The Marketing. It's so core to marketing, they just call it The Marketing. The books have sold over 250,000 copies worldwide. Folks, please join me in welcoming Ron Jacobs to The Currency. Ron, welcome. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. I'm pretty excited. I know that was a bit of a long intro, but I I wanted to do you justice because um, you've done so much. You've been doing it for a while, and I'm excited to have you on. Yes, my mother would be very happy with that uh, intro, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, well, I have to tell you, I think my mom is my uh, one of two listeners on this show. I think I've got my wife and my mom that are subscribed to the show, so I'm excited for the exposure you're going to get for being here. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, jo- joking aside, you know, the cool thing, um, the podcast is relatively new and, and I'm excited to have you on. I, I've been looking at the distribution of the podcast and I've got listeners all over Europe. I've got listeners in Asia, the U.S. It's kind of cool. So uh, I do believe my mom and wife listen to the show, but the show does have pretty wide distribution. So thanks. I'm glad to have you on today because I want to talk about how AI is becoming more of a factor in direct marketing. And you've had a career where you've had a perspective on this. You've seen kind of this evolution and how AI has become more of a factor. And I think that uh, you'll be able to help us understand this better. Before we get into that topic, though, do you mind just sharing with the audience a little bit about who you are and what Jacobs and Clevenger does? Well, uh, I'm a marketer and I somehow got hooked into direct marketing back in college and took a couple courses. Actually, uh, the textbook I had was the first edition of Successful Direct Marketing Methods. Uh, My co-author, Bob Stone, passed away a few years ago. But that actually got me really interested in in direct marketing because I, I, I liked the idea that everything could be measured. Uh, we could identify a return on marketing investment. Uh, I liked the challenge, the ability to do testing. I liked all the things that were involved in direct marketing. And if you'll go back uh, uh, 40 years, uh, advertising wasn't like that. 
marketers uh, and advertisers were doing advertising in a much different way where measurement wasn't the first thing that they thought of. So I, I jumped into this field because of that and started my own agency in 1982. And, and shortly after, uh, Bob Stone asked me once again to, to uh, work with him and help him with his uh, book. I actually had worked at Stone and Adler. I was his account supervisor for a, a couple of years and before I started my own agency. And... Um, Bob asked me to come back and help because he said he didn't know anyone else who knew anything about the internet or was even talking about it. This is, I want to say, 1994. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, in fact, I was teaching a course at Northwestern University in the Integrated Marketing Communications Program there. Uh one of their media professors had passed away and they asked me to take the course over and I did. Uh, but they didn't give me a direct marketing course. They said, could you teach uh, an advertising or media course? And I said, oh, I don't know anything about media. And they said, well, that's okay. Uh, why, you can find someone who knows about reach and frequency. Why don't you teach a little bit about the internet? And that's what I did. Uh, and I created the first internet course in the graduate program at, at Medill and uh, really started talking to my clients about it. And it seemed like three or four factors kind of all coalesced for me at that point. It was the measurement. It was the uh, data and analytics. It was the way to communicate. And I, I kind of saw the Internet as being a, a, even better than direct mail at doing a lot of the things that uh, we had been doing for clients already at that time for, for uh, uh, 15 or, or, or 20 years. So fast forward to today, uh, you, you, you know, you got an early start with the internet. And if I look at the the company that you're running, Jacobs and Clevenger, what kinds of work are you focused on? Are you solely doing direct marketing now? The, the short answer is yes, but the longer answer is a lot more complicated. So we're still really good at direct mail. We do millions of pieces of direct mail for clients. But we're also good at marketing automation, email programs that uh, that nurture, that drip, that uh, uh, trigger, that really develop uh, a way of talking to consumers over time, which to me is a lot of what we were doing with direct mail. So uh, we do marketing automation, we develop uh, uh, whole apps for, for clients and, and other tools that really help them, uh, again, talk to their clients. We do a lot of data and analytics. Uh, that's really uh, the, the undercurrent of, of things we do. And, and frankly, I have clients that I don't do creative work for, but I do do data and analytics for, because for me, that sort of drives things, whether it's through uh, a traditional channel or uh, a digital channel. Well, that seems to go back to your original interest when you said uh, you were interested in marketing, but you really got drawn to direct because of the ability to measure. What changed? I mean, I, I think of the early days, and I think most of us kind of go back to the Mad Men pastiche. You know, it's like the the hard drinking, hard living ad execs that come up with a creative idea and make a bunch of money. But it sounds like something obviously changed where measurement became more possible. What what drove that? Because this is pre personal computer that measurement became a thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I think what started to happen were clients were asking 
the, the, that famous question, you know, how am I spending my money? Uh, and it wasn't good <laughs> enough for marketers to say, well, you know, you're wasting half of it, but if you knew which half, you know, that, that kind of thinking yeah. just no longer was making it as we got into the 90s, where already marketing departments were starting to be strapped for resources. Companies were cutting back. I started Jacobs and Clevenger in 1982, which was famously during Reagan's recession. And what I what I found was that my business always has done better when times were lean, because when times are lean, clients don't want to spend as much money on marketing and the money they do spend, they want to better understand. They want to see how is that money being spent? And they don't want to just hire an agency that can come up with a big idea. They want to hire an agency or they want to work with people who can come up with big ideas that they can actually measure and understand uh, uh, how they're impacting their business. It's an interesting dynamic you bring up that that when times are tougher, that's when a service like yours does better. It's, it makes sense, and I totally get it. People start trimming the fat. Uh, we don't need a Super Bowl ad this year, but we still need to get warm leads, so they go to to a more direct approach. Um, what do you do? What do you do during a good economy? Well, you know, even in even in a good economy. Consume uh, uh, businesses still need to talk to their customers, and in a good economy, we spend a lot of time uh, maximizing the value of cus- of customers for clients, and uh, we start to move back into acquisition as the economy gets better. But the minute it tightens up, then we go back and work with customers because the the idea that y- you can learn a lot from your customers is is quintessential to direct marketing. And I, I think that drives a lot of our thinking. That's why I like data and analytics so much because I, I can do so much prediction based on um, what I see. I can sure. begin to lay out for a client, here's how things are actually going to work. Uh, and I may not be 100%, but boy, I, I, I'm going to be a lot closer than if it was just guessing. Ron, do me a favor, just for the audience. Most of the audience is marketing savvy, but I, I want to make sure we're defining terms because things are a little loose sometimes in marketing. Um, when we say direct marketing, what are we talking about? Because I think a lot of people, you know, in my mind, I tend to go to bulk mail, and I know that that's not accurate. So how would you describe or define direct marketing? Yeah, so the, the definition that's in the book, and, and uh, Bob Stone actually had this lengthy definition that he and some of his friends had, had developed over years. And when I started working with him on the book, I said, I, I'd like to use my definition. And he, he acquiesced. It was, it was great. And this is the, the, the definition that I use. Direct marketing is the interactive use of advertising media to stimulate an immediate behavior modification in such a way that that behavior can be tracked, recorded, and analyzed and stored on a database for future retrieval and use. And if you, you know, unpack that long, long definition, it's all about channels and, and not just direct mail. It's, it's virtually every channel today, uh, we do things where we're trying to generate an immediate response, a direct response from people. And we want to 
create that response in a way that we can actually see the results of it. Look at the results, understand how how people are responding, what they're responding to, which segments of, of them are, are responding. And we want to store all that information in a place where we can retrieve it. We want to not only store the results, but we want to store uh, the, the data on those customers, on those prospects, on the people who come. And if you think about that, th- that really is kind of how digital marketing works today. It's uh, how a lot of print marketing works today. It's even how, uh, if you, you really get far, uh, far-sighted about this, it's how the future of television uh, seems to be developing as, as marketers are able to create addressable uh, advertising to, to people you know, uh, on cable boxes and actually see that only the people who fit their customer profiles or personas get those messages. So it, it's really much more encompassing in 2019 than it was back in uh, 1955 or you know, going back to the, the earliest days of direct sure. marketing when, when we had catalog marketers. Chicago was always the uh, mail order center of the United yeah. States. Yeah. And uh, as a result, direct mail has always been a, a, a big part of our, our business. One more sidelight to this. Uh, I, I got this opportunity to work with uh, post offices. This is a kind of an odd and curious thing. There's something called the Universal Postal Union in Bern, Switzerland, which is supported by um, uh, the United Nations, actually. And they work to standardize postal uh, mailing in, in countries around the world. So the zip codes and other th- and addressing are, are similar so that mail can be moved from one place to another. But uh, I started working with them and, and not surprisingly, they did sort of what uh, the folks at Medell asked me to do. The post offices said, can you come and talk about direct mail, but also explain to us this digital transformation that's going on. How do we incorporate direct mail into the future of, of, of where things are going, uh, which I thought was very, very interesting. So I've worked with China Post. I'm building a database. I've worked with uh, Japan Post ongoing over the years uh, to, to do everything from uh, helping with direct mail to creating a website or helping them to, to design a website that uh, their marketers in Japan could use to sell to consumers in China uh, so they, they could uh, actually gracious. order products. Yeah, so th- there's all, th- this has been a, a really interesting journey for me. You know, as you're talking, Ron, uh, it becomes very clear the impact of the Internet, the interconnectedness, the personal computer databases, this whole digital transformation that our societies have been going uh, undergoing over the last few decades. Uh, and, and this starts to bring me to, to our topic, which is this concept of AI. So as we're talking about gathering all this data and measuring and segmenting and channels, it becomes unwieldy, I think, for a human being to deal with this. And, and I'm assuming this is where the kind of the AI piece of the story comes in. Can you talk a little bit about the introduction of these intelligence tools that we're using and how they came about and how we're using them? Sure. So, uh, Alan Turing was this mathematician. He worked on the Enigma project, helped crack the, the, the German code uh, by using uh, mathematics and a machine that wasn't really a computer, but that 
Turing used to to begin to postulate that that, that what what could become computers. And he, he's considered the father of computers. You may have heard yesterday that uh, in England they're going to put his his image now on the fifty pound note. Yes, uh, I saw which, that. Yeah, which is which is really great. But he wrote a paper in 1950, and this paper asked this question: You know, can machines think? And uh, it, it was a great question. And there became a test called the Turing test to to actually figure out if machines could actually think. In 1955, a group at uh, at uh, Dartmouth got together, and they said, we're, we're going to try to take what Turing had laid out and build on it. And back then, computers were nascent. Uh, they couldn't even compute within the computer, meaning uh, the processing was done within the computer, but the data wasn't held within the computer. This is much different than the complexity of what we see now. And as they were talking about making computers think, a fellow by the name of John McCarthy, who was one of the the people who was uh, curating this group, he coined this term artificial intelligence, and he liked it because of, of its neutrality. There were a couple separate tracks. One was a scientific track, and one was an engineering track, and one was a more mechanical track that computers were going down. And he said, this, this will cover it all. Uh, so, so AI is defined in a variety of ways. It's a branch of computer science dealing with the simulation of intelligent behavior in computers. But what that means is, is, when we say intelligent behavior AI is neither as dystopian or as fantastical as we we see it today, uh, and and we, we we've heard a lot of promises. These guys fell into that same trap. They made a lot of promises about how it would change language, and and actually, after ten years of work, this group actually had not created any real viable products, and. Even government started to say, well, we're not sure we want to fund continued work in, in AI. And uh, they continued their work, but without a lot of university or government support. And eventually, uh, they started to develop some products that could use game theory. Uh, a lot of probability and mathematics is built on game theory. Many of these folks were mathematicians, but they were also physicists and theoreticians. And, and they developed game theory. So they developed a, a, a tool that would allow uh, them to play chess. And this chess game then became what IBM created a little bit later under uh, using Watson, uh, which was a, 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 pro a product that could be hand uh Created it was was programmed by a person, but the machine actually began to learn on its own. This is what's called assisted AI. Uh, AI, where someone programs the computer, but the machine then learns on its own. Eventually, the real breakthrough came when, uh, and, and this is literally almost uh, 2014, the real breakthrough came when Google 
started indexing all of the internet and realized that there was no way to do that with the existing technology of the time. So they created a software program called MapReduce. And MapReduce was the first big data uh, software. And out of MapReduce, a few years later, came uh, Yahoo creating Hadoop, which was the first open source big data program. And now that there's small data and big data, small data being rows and columns of data like a spreadsheet, and big data being being data that can actually uh, look at video files and, and non-structured, what we call non-structured data, all of a sudden they made huge strides in what computers could do. So the, these next two or three big jumps were that uh, they taught a computer not just to play chess, which has 20 moves in the first move and then like 400 moves for the second move. They taught it uh, to play a game called uh, Go, Chinese game. Go has 381 uh, places on the, uh, on the board and actually all 381 could be the first move. And if you do the math on that, you begin to realize how many first moves there could be. So these big data machines actually uh, were programmed to teach themselves how to play Go. And the way this m machine is called AlphaGo taught itself was by playing itself. And it kept learning which moves would be better, which moves, which starting moves, which ending moves. And if the other person moved this way, you would move that way. And that's how we got into this kind of uh, 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 much more, uh, not machine learning, but deep learning is the term that, that's used for that. So this is the second big branch of it. But a key to both machine learning and deep learning as it is today is that it's still what would be called narrow AI. And narrow AI is AI which only focuses on one thing. So you may have heard there was a, 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 a big breakthrough again most recently. Uh, they just started talking about this, a, a, an AI that could actually play Texas Hold'em. Uh, Six-person Texas Hold'em. And what's, again, hard about that is that there's actually strategy and uh, not just math involved. There's a little luck in Texas Hold'em, but what the machine learned was, again, how to move if somebody else, when somebody else uh, uh, played a card. And the difference between chess and go and Texas Hold'em is that in Texas Hold'em, you don't know what the other person has. So this is a huge breakthrough, but it's still a narrow focus. It's still narrow AI. Now, going back in time, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke uh, in, in, in the movie, movie 2001 had HAL. And HAL was what's called general AI, general intelligence. And that's what we're, we're not at. Uh, people already thought back then we would have that in no time at all. But even today, we're still in, a, in an age where everything is narrow AI and not 
uh, uh, general AI. And for a marketer, that's actually a good thing because what it's done is it's spawned a lot of uses uh, within marketing products. My guest today is Ron Jacobs. He's the CEO of Jacobs and Clevenger. We're going to return in a minute. I'm going to ask Ron how this AI technology applies to direct marketing and marketing in general. And we're going to debunk some ideas around AI as well. And and Ron's going to share some use cases. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. And I'll be back in just a moment with Ron. Folks, thanks so much for joining me today on this episode of The Currency. Hopefully you're having as much fun listening as I am interviewing today's guest. We're going to get right back to the show in just a minute, but I want to ask you for two really easy, really quick favors. The first is, if you haven't already, please subscribe. The Currency is delivered weekly, and if you enjoy branding, strategy, marketing, a little bit of entrepreneurship, then this is the show for you. Just go over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, anywhere the fine podcasts are provided, and hit that subscribe button. You'll get The Currency delivered hot and fresh to your digital device of choice every week. Now, the second thing I'm asking is for you to leave a review. It really helps the show get found. Every time someone leaves a review on iTunes or Spotify or any of these platforms, it signals both to the platform and to their audiences that this is a podcast worthy of attention. It helps promote the podcast, and it helps potential listeners know if this is something that they should invest their time in. So if you wouldn't mind, take a moment, subscribe, and leave a review. It helps me out immensely. Now, let's get back to today's show. And we're back. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Gaston. This is The Currency, and our guest today is Ron Jacobs. He is the CEO of Jacobs and Clevenger, and I want to let you know how you can get in touch with Ron. He'd be happy to talk with you if you want to get in touch. You just send him an email. Uh, he's, he's more than happy to communicate. Just uh, email ronjacobs at jacobsclevenger.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-S-C-L-E. V-E-N-G-E-R.com, Jacobs Clevenger. I'll put a link to Ron's uh, information in the show notes. And just to let you know, too, Ron has provided a fantastic list of online resources about AI and AI knowledge. If any of you want to get more up to speed, I'll post that in the show notes. Ron, welcome back to The Currency. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, this is, you, you, this is a gripping history. I'm so glad you took the time to share some of this with us. Uh, I think a lot of us have heard of Turing, but I didn't know a lot of these steps and... Uh, and the, and the kind of difference between general versus uh, narrow AI. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, this, these developments now apply to what we do as marketers? What are some of the ways that AI are used in direct marketing? And after that, I want to get a little bit into debunking some of the misconceptions, but how is it applied right now? How do you use it? Well, you know, let me let me point out that today it's the ability to track media channels and device consumption has never been greater, but the the need for it has never been greater. And marketing and communications are way more complex, have shorter horizons than than we've ever had before. And there's a lot of noise in the marketplace. So marketers have to struggle to kind of get through the noise as, as well as everything else. What I think most people don't understand is how AI actually has already been introduced into a lot of the tools that we have. And 
when I say the tools that we already have, everything from uh, Adobe Marketing Cloud and Oracle and uh, Salesforce all have aspects of AI, mostly machine learning, already built into them. So Adobe and uh, Oracle have data and analytics tools, which are uh, machine driven. Uh, Salesforce actually has had a product for almost 20 years within it that helps with its uh, marketing automation and and rules building. Uh, They just now call it uh, mark, uh, machine learning or AI, but but the product has been there. There's a tool called Optimizely for conversion rate optimization. It's AI driven, um, and you know if if uh, any of your user, uh, any of your listeners, have Facebook or Google accounts, they're going to already be familiar with those little answers at the bottom of, of messages now where all you have to do is touch it and it will send, yeah, not right now or yes or no. Those are all AI driven. So AI is actually being embedded into a host of tools that as marketers we're already using. So when I see, like I use LinkedIn and someone will send a message saying, okay, great. I'm looking forward to seeing you for coffee on Friday at 2 p.m. So like you said, it'll give me some options. I can give them a thumbs up emoji. I can say, okay, great. Or I can say, see you then. I just thought that was a bit of a card trick. Like it's just scanning for certain words and connecting the dots. But you say there's more going on behind the scene? Well, yes. I mean, in essence, that's exactly what it's doing. But it's doing it for you and uh, all the other people that are sending messages online at that same uh, moment. And it's happening happening almost instantaneously. So you think about that. That's a lot more computer power than just, uh, you know, a card trick or parlor trick might be. And how about in the direct marketing world? How is AI being used now in the work that you do? Well, I mentioned the the marketing automation workflows, logic, and and business rules. Uh, This is the the biggest thing. Uh, Business rules are are probably one of the more complicated tools for people to figure out. When I say business rules, I'm talking about where we're, we're, we're sending out marketing automations, and we want to move people from one workflow to another workflow. So people who uh, uh, first we acquire, once we acquire them, we want to send them a welcome, and we want to send them a series of welcomes. So now the AI is helping us build the rules that say this person has moved from uh, uh, acquisition to onboarding, then from onboarding to activation. They haven't used the product in so so long. We need to reactivate them, and that's another workflow. So so we're using it a lot in in tools like that, uh, but we're going a lot further. Uh, we're using tools for content strategy uh, to, to actually read content to assure that it meets our, our client standards. We're using it for competitive intelligence. Uh, uh, there's uh, a number of products. Crayon is one. Uh, there's a couple of others that are really great. 
uh, to do the competitive intelligence and analysis uh, to begin to display the most meaningful insights that we can find uh, about customers. It can, uh, Crayon, for example, tracks and mines more than 100 types of data from over 7 million sources of uh, competitors, websites, partners, and customers' online behavior. And, and that, as a marketer, gives us a huge advantage sure. to be able to, to, to gain insight. And, you know, whatever kind of insight we're talking about. And insights uh, mean a lot of different things. There's marketing insights and customer insights insights and uh, consumer insights and business insight. Well, this is tracking all of those different insights and putting it all together for us in a way that we can actually begin to understand and take some of the complexity out of it. I, I want to probe a little bit with this specific example because, um, so I'll do work for clients, say I'll build, I'll work on their brand. I'll do competitive analysis, qualitative research, and as I'm going through my weeks of research and looking at the market and exploring all these things, I'll have an aha moment. So I'm going through all the data on a qualitative level. I'm just kind of looking at things as a human being, and I'll have an insight. That insight becomes quite valuable uh, and often can become part of the foundation of a solution for a client. Why I ask this, where I'm going with this is to say, the process of getting to the insight for me is almost as valuable as the insight itself because I've done all this research. I've got my mind around it. It's given me context. And now the insight lives within a context. What's it like when this computer, this AI, this artificial intelligence is doing all that legwork and then spitting out an insight? Does it diminish or, or lessen the value of the insight? Or is there more risk of incorrectly applying the insight? How do you how do you deal with that? Maybe I've got the wrong paradigm, but I'm just trying to understand. <laughs> no, I, I think you're you're onto a good point. I, I think what the tools do, and, and this is where I, I think your listeners again should feel very comfortable uh, in their jobs and in their shoes and and in everything else that we do, because the machines can spit out hundreds of insights, and they can even identify insights the machines consider to be the most important insights. But what that simply does is reduce the amount of legwork we have. So instead of the weeks of work you might normally do to gain those insights, the machine will plug, uh, uh, will actually do this work in, in hours, minutes, seconds sometimes, and provide a whole list of insights but where I say we don't have much to worry about is we still have to sort through those insights and sure. identify them and, and make the human decision. This is where we actually have intelligence beyond what machines have because machines, again, are narrowly focused on tasks and they're identifying uh, all the insights, but they're not necessarily telling us, they're telling us which one comes up the most, which one seems to be the most important. The, the, they can rate those, but it'll be up to us to decide w what actually are, are the most important. And uh, I don't know about you, but I have clients and they'll look at those insights and they'll say, no, here's the one that's most important to us. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and uh, it doesn't matter what a machine tells them or what I tell, uh, tell them, uh, they're going to actually sort through that information and decide what they think is most important. The machine's going to give us an objective result, Correct. meaning it went through all the data, all the big data, whatever this data is, small data, 
and it's saying, here's what stands out. It's still up to us to bring a level of subjectivity and interpretive uh, acumen to understand the importance of the data and what uh, the insight and what we should do with it, uh, whether we should do something with it or not. So, and I was referring to qualitative. I can't do quantitative data the way a machine can. No human being can do that on their own. So, yeah, no, but that. but 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 the qualitative is just as important. And uh, I, I often point this out to 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 folks. You know, as a, as a direct marketer, uh, we tend to think logically. And we focus on the logic side of of marketing, and sometimes we do that uh, to the detriment of the emotional side of marketing. That's why a lot of direct marketing looks like a yard sale uh, rather than you know has has the beautiful uh, 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 words and and feelings and emotions that that consumers can empathize with, and that's a problem. Because as as marketers today, I, I think we've we've had to learn to bring logic and emotion together. I think this is the greatest impact of of the understanding I have of marketing uh, over the last uh, uh, forty years is is how it's changed to not be all emotion like a, a Hallmark commercial or all logical like you know a, a flyer in the Sunday paper, but much more. Somewhere in between, where it's it's helping consumers to get the emotional hooks to make decisions, while at the same time providing the logic to help them uh, actually uh, rationalize the decision. And this is where the professional comes in. The professional marketer can help marry those two things. It sounds like it, it, absolutely. And again, the machine can can help put something together, but. I have something I show in a lot of my presentations. Uh, Microsoft has a, a product called Photo. It comes with uh, Office, and it organizes all my photos. And it, the first time I saw this, it had I'd been to Iceland, and it turned one of my little uh, photo spreads. Uh, it selected the photos. It put music to it. It organized the photos into a little show. Um, and I played it, and it was really kind of fun and terrific until I got to the fifth slide. And the fifth slide was the title slide. Now, it was, <laughs> it was smart enough to do everything but get the title slide as the first slide, which I found amazing. And I still, I mean, I keep this and show it because it still shows where the human part of, uh, sure. of intervention is and, and, and why machines still need us. Sure. And if you, that's a fantastic example. If you were to look at my iPhoto catalog, if a machine went through and said, I'll tell you what's most important to Mike by looking through all of his photos, it might think the most important thing is a, is a plate of food because I'm taking all these food photos just because my wife and I are out. But, but sentimentally and as a human being, just because there's a prevalence of those images doesn't mean that's what's most important to me. It's the, it's the photos of my children or a vacation. A machine can't know that necessarily. It's looking at numbers and well, saying, well, there's all these food photos. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, in this, in this video of Iceland, the very last photo is a picture of my wife uh, eating a hot dog at an uh, hot, uh, outdoor <laughs> hot dog stand. And okay. my wife, it's my wife. 
and she loves hot dogs. And to her, that was the most important picture in the whole thing. Oh, wow. So it got it. It, it, it actually did get it. Uh, yeah, it got the puffins and all of that as well. But it sure, it actually did get it. And it, it seemed to be uh, a, an interesting point. That's fantastic. You know, Ron, it's interesting. I I had a guest on the show maybe a month or so ago. His name is Gary Rosenfeld, and he's a a data scientist. He's actually uh, in the same neck of the woods as you in in Chicago area. And he brought the same kind of argument. He articulated a little bit differently, but that uh, the value of the data isn't about the objectivity. You've got to bring some subjectivity to the data. You can do all the data science work you want to but it's all about interpreting the insights and figuring out what to do with them. And it sounds like you're saying the same thing, that we need the machines for this raw power, but you still need that human insight to say, okay, what do we do with this? Is this important? How do we use it? And I think that's that's a powerful statement. It, it really is. And I was using algorithms, again, uh, when I first got into the business years and years ago. And, and that's what drove me into uh, direct marketing. But what kept me in advertising is that idea that there is some subjectivity to it and that we are bringing both the quantitative and qualitative together uh, to create communications which, you know, engage and, and uh, interest people at the same time as they get them to respond. You know, Ron, I want to, before we, I want to talk about a use case, you know, if you can give an example. Before we do that, can we just take a moment? I think the term AI, and I think you've already been helping to do this, but AI is, you know, I think of, I think we all think of these science fiction, this, this entity that's sentient, that it's, it's uh, going to take over like Skynet and the Terminator and take over the world, but it's thinking and pr- uh, probing. Can you help demystify a little bit? Because when you're talking, I'm hearing these little scripts and programs running in the back end of Salesforce. That's AI as well. Help us as marketers understand what is this AI? Is this something that I can access as a as a smaller person? Is this something that you know, doesn't have to be a giant room full of computers? What is this AI? How can I understand it in a way that's uh, pragmatic and meaningful? Well, subject lines is a good example. Uh, subject lines for emails are are very important to email marketers. If you're if you're a pure email marketer, you want to create the best subject line. Well, a, a, an AI tool can help you understand subject lines by looking at all the subject lines marketers are using. If if it's part of a software program, and there's a couple of these that, that actually do this, they're looking at all the results of all the other subject lines that people who are affiliated with that organization see. So they're selling a tool that will create new subject lines, but it learns by looking at other subject lines that have worked and not worked. And and this is a, a, a real, honest to gosh, both use case and way that AI learns and, and can, can actually help. So it'll produce a whole group of subject lines that hopefully would work better than the ones uh, that we use. Uh, uh, I, I recall uh, reading uh, uh, about the uh, Obama campaign in, in uh 2000, I think, and 12, they had uh, 40 copywriters in a room every morning working on subject lines. And they were literally throwing subject lines on the wall, and they were testing eight or ten of these subject lines literally every day. I don't have a client 
that would afford me the ability to hire 40 copywriters. (laughs) Yeah, to throw ideas at the wall, uh, a political campaign can. And 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 by the way, the results of those uh, of one of the fundraising uh, uh, subject lines that they wrote, uh, it it created literally two to I think more than two million dollars in contributions just from that one subject line for that one day. Uh, tested in the morning and rolled out in the afternoon. That's what AI can do for for clients in uh, at, in virtually real time today. I, I think that's really uh, a, a huge uh, leap forward for us. I hear you on that as far as effectiveness goes, but the concern I have is creativity. What happens to creativity? I think of David Ogilvy. You know, and and uh, he was a copywriter and a genius copywriter, built a huge agency, huge reputation on that. What happens to creativity when AI is kind of directing, and I'll say dictating, I don't mean it really, but dictating how we create content, what we say, and what's most effective? Uh you know, I, I, I don't think it kills creativity because we still can tweak it. We can still look at it and, and tweak it. Is it more automated? Yeah, I, I have to give you that. Uh, and, and, and yet I ask myself this. If I have a group of salespeople in a room on phones talking every day to, to customers, I have some of them who are doing better than others. That doesn't sound, I mean, that's something everyone would agree with. Well, I've got an AI program that can actually listen to what they're saying, identify the differences between the best and worst of them, and help me to, to better monetize what it is I'm actually hearing. Now, that may be answering your question the way y- you're worried about it. But to me, as a marketer, I look at that and say, well, this will help me. Not, it not only helps me identify the best and the worst, but what makes the best better, what scripts should be used. And frankly, it, it, it even will help me figure out how to write those scripts for the future that uh, even the worst marketers or the worst uh, telephone sales reps use will actually make them better. So I, I think there is a level of creativity there, uh, but it, it is machine learning. So there is a also kind of a kind of an iron um, hand that it that it starts to add to it. Yeah, I just I asked the question because I think of the formulaic nature of a lot of content. Today, you know, we saw the, like the rise of the listicle and yep. uh, there's certain headlines that we see. And, you know, as marketers are creating more and more of the content online, I mean, it used to be, and I and look, people still write novels, they still create movies for artistic purposes, but a lot of the content we're, we're consuming day to day is driven by some type of marketing or commercial need. And I guess my concern was just, or is, what happens to the human experience as more and more of what we consume is is generated by a machine, or you know, directed I, by a machine? It, uh, I, I don't worry about that as much as uh, I, and I may be wrong for not worrying about it, uh, but but I I look at a lot of what I see. Uh, this this 
you're hitting on another area of AI, which is what uh, what's now called natural language uh, processing, natural language. And this is what chatbots do. Uh, you know, chatbots get into uh, IoT, the Internet of Things, but most of them are actually AI driven. So while it's the Internet of Things, it's AI driven. Uh, we don't have to talk about blockchain on this call, but that's kind of that third area that everyone's worried about. What, what, what I think of, though, with natural language is something that's much more human sounding, can be more brand compliant. Uh, and, and those are things that, again, when I talk to my clients, they worry about. I can't get humans to, to remain brand compliant all the time. I can't, sure. I can't get sure. humans uh, to, to always write human sounding copy. I mean, I, I read a lot of copy from uh, young copywriters that, frankly, is worse than what I would get from a machine. It's, you know, it's right. It, right. and, and um, the machines are actually getting so good. Uh, Word AI uh, can read text and is able to automatically rewrite sentences uh, and articles to give them that the kind of readability that a human writer would 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 uh, provide. But again, I want to point something out about that. It, it's understanding and rewriting what's already been written. So how did that get written in the first place? I, I don't think we have AI that does original writing uh, in that way. It's very good at rewriting. It's not as good mm -hmm. as, as that initial writing. Ron, this is, uh, this is fascinating. And I, 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 the thing is, this is where the world is going. I mean, I, I'm asking the question out of more curiosity about creativity, but clearly human beings thrive in every circumstance and there's, there's a place for us. Machines aren't going to replace us. We're just learning as these things evolve, how we incorporate them into the human experience, become better at what we do. You know, your point about uh, brand voice and brand consistency is really well taken. You, you can have uh, a team of a thousand social media experts for a really big brand, but you, you know, how do you manage and keep an eye on all those folks to make sure if someone might come in having had a bad day and the last thing you want is for them to be bringing that personal experience into the brand uh, communication for the so I, I see the value there. What what considerations do you think uh, marketers should have if they want to start entering into this? So you've been doing this for a long time. I've got listeners that are business owners, that are marketers, executives. What advice would you give them if they want to start exploring and leveraging these types of tools for direct marketing? Well. The very first thing I'd say is uh, start researching and start reading about this. There, there's something called the uh, AI Marketing Institute. Uh, in fact, they're they're having their big conference, uh, I think, today and tomorrow. Um, and and uh, they're a great group. There's so much writing. I gave you the, the this little list of of articles, uh, which uh, are mostly resources. Uh, but mm -hmm. you know. The, the the real key to me is is to start by asking yourself this what problems am i trying to solve what problems am i trying to solve for myself and for my customers and you know what are the customer issues and you know what are the ones i really want to be able to evaluate then you know, review the processes you have internally. Look at your the available data because AI runs on data 
and it really, really needs it. So understand, you know, what your business questions are and what your organization strategy is and the value of different solutions you've already looked at. Then read articles from AI thought leaders, you know, sort through the hype. Uh, there's so much hype with AI, and, and I got to be honest, it still hasn't reached uh, the pinnacle or anywhere close to to what we, we could hope it uh, can do. So you have to identify what AI tech is real and, and what, uh, you know, who's using it and what can be provided right now. Review your existing MarTech stack. Everyone has one of these right now. Uh, so look at what you've already got. If you've got IBM uh, or Adobe or Oracle, you may have uh, the tools of AI already built in. Even HubSpot, Salesforce, I mentioned, they all have it. Uh, the final thing I, I tell people is quit talking about AI and, and start using it, start testing it. You know, it's good to have mm -hmm. conversations, but take a little budget, set it aside, dive in, do some iteration, uh, analyze your results and, uh, you know, and, and find out what actually, uh, find out what actually can work for you. Ron, what, what should users, marketing people, professionals, entrepreneurs, owners, what should they look for in a partner? And this isn't, I don't mean this is an underhanded pitch like, hey, tell us about your agency, which is fine. But what, because I, I can read all the links. I'm going to provide these links in the show notes. Uh, but often it's good to have somebody help you, at least with those first few projects to get your feet under you. What should I look for in a partner if I want to explore? AI? Look for a guide. Don't uh, don't look for an expert who will tell you what you need to know. Look for someone who can guide you through it and and help you learn and help you learn on your uh, your own to a great degree, uh, and not literally spoon feed it to you. It's uh, I'm glad to come in and do uh, AI integrations or marketing integrations or even marketing stack integrations for clients, but I'd rather lead them to it. I'd rather help them to uh, look at what the marketplace is. Is, uh, identify what the products are. The biggest thing we all have trouble with is identifying what's real and what's not. Uh, and and there's so many places to start. You know, should we be analyzing content? Uh, should we be using it for keywords and topics? And uh, do we have the right data? I, I think those are the things you need a guide for to kind of help say, well, here's what here's what you have and here's uh, what you need in order to actually uh, make it work. My guest today has been Ron Jacobs. He is the CEO of Jacobs and Clevenger. Uh, I would highly encourage you to reach out to Ron if you would like to learn more about AI. His email address is ronjacobs at jacobsclevenger.com. Ron, thank you so much for being a guest today on The Currency. Mike, thanks very much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it a lot. I enjoyed the talk. Folks, make sure to check out Ron and his company. You can go to jacobsclevenger.com. You can read more about Ron and the great work that they do. Uh, again, you can hit him on his email address, ronjacobs at jacobsclevenger.com. And if you haven't done so already, make sure that you subscribe to the show. We come out weekly. We talk to great people like Ron. You can find us on Apple, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, anywhere that fine podcasts are provided. Guys, I love you all. Thank you for your time. We'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you.